cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, what can I say? Bill Dudley, uh, former New York Fed president, um, multiple positions at Goldman Sachs on the Federal Reserve, at the New York Fed, really a masterclass in how monetary policy is not only made, but executed and put into actual operations. There are few people in the world who understand the interrelationships between central banks, the economy and markets like Bill Dudley does. Uh, this uh, this is just a master class in, in understanding all the factors that affect uh, everything from the economy to inflation to the labor market, the housing market, and of course, Federal Reserve policy. I, I could go on and on, but instead, I'll just say, with no further ado, my conversation with former New York Fed President Bill Dudley. Great to be here, Barry. It's great to have you. So I feel like I have to call you Bill. You, Bill, that's because that's, that's what I always hear you described as, not a William. Yep. Let, let's talk a little bit about your background. You get an economics PhD from uh, California Berkeley in '82, and around the same time, you become an economist at the Federal Reserve Board from 81 to 83. Tell, tell us a little bit about that role. I, w- I was there in the what's called, called the financial studies section, which is one of the very small places in the Fed that is not macroeconomics driven, it's microeconomics. So we worked on things like payments policy, you know, regulatory policy, so all, all sorts of micro issues, not macro issues. It was a pretty interesting period because the, the Congress had just passed what's called the Monetary Control Act, where they were forcing the Fed to charge for all its services to, so, so to sort of level the playing field with the private sector. Mm-hmm. So we had to figure out how we're going to price all these services in a way uh, that we can still sort of stay in business and be a viable competitor to the private sector. Huh. That, that's kind of bizarre. I would imagine... In 1982, the Fed was a much smaller entity than it is today. Uh, What was a day in the life of a Fed economist like back then? So I was working on issues, uh, you know, on payments. Uh, I worked on issues on, you know, some, some, some of them were quite esoteric. So, for example, the Treasury was thinking about moving to direct deposit, but they wanted to know how much it was going to cost them because direct deposit, they, 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 the money clears, you know, sorry, almost instantly, mm-hmm. right? When you write a check, 
you get check float. It takes time for the checks to come back to the hit the treasury account. So they want to know, how many days does it take a, a treasury check to get back to us? So we actually set, set up this project where we went out to the reserve banks and sampled checks to find out how long did it actually take uh, someone to, to get their treasury check and deposit it somewhere and have it get back to the Fed and debit the treasury account. It turned out to be like eight or nine days on average. And, and on a couple of billion dollars, that float is real money. It's real money. So we wanted to make sure that under, pe- people understood what the cost was now obviously it's a good thing to do I mean it does mm-hmm. cost the Treasury money but it's a much more efficient uh, and more reliable uh, payments medium did you overlap with uh, chairman Paul Volcker when you were there yes I did uh, I didn't have a lot of interactions with him I remember one time though I did do a briefing of the of the Board of Governors and it, at the time they had they had this very long table in the board in the main you know Board of Governors meeting room and Volker sat at one end and the, the briefer sat all the way at the other end mm-hmm. which was made it sort of complicated because Volker had a, usually had a cigar stuck in his mouth and <laughs> he would have a cigar and you could like straining to hear them the, the senior staff was ready to rescue you if you said something inappropriate. I mean, right. it, they set the bar, uh, the tension bar so high because you, you could actually couldn't actually do a briefing until you've actually taken a course. No so, kidding. So that means like you're not exactly relaxed when you're going to, to brief the I'm governors. Sure. It's not a lot of give and take. It's very, it was a very formal process. And, and even without a cigar in his mouth, I only got to meet Tall Paul once, but he's kind of gruff and mumbles, like not a clear projecting voice, kind of a, a hoarse mumbling voice. I can imagine with a cigar in his mouth. Who could even tell what he's saying? Well, I, I seem to have gotten it good enough. And you know, what's interesting about that, uh, uh, I didn't really have that much interaction with Paul over the next you know, 15, 20 years. But once I got to the Fed, we started to actually see each other on a much more regular basis. I got involved with the Group of 30. Paul was a member of the mm-hmm. Group of 30. And we gradually became pretty good friends. Uh, so it started like very slow and sort of it matured like fine wine. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he's, a, he's a fascinating guy and what, what an amazing... Um, career. So before you come back to the Fed, there's a private sector interval. Tell us a little bit about the 20 years you spent at Goldman Sachs, where you not only became a managing director and a partner, but you know, really very much rose through the ranks. Well, first I went to J.P. Morgan. I was there, the regulatory economist. J.P. Morgan at the time had one regulatory economist. And so when the job came open and they approached me at the Fed, I thought, Boy, if I don't take this job, it's not going to be available. <laughs> you know, a, f- a few years later. Mm-hmm. So I went to J.P. Morgan and I worked on a lot of bank regulatory uh, matters, and that's why I'm still very interested in bank regulatory issues. Um, but that seemed to me like not a really great long-term career, because as you know, bank regulation changes very slowly, mm-hmm. and I sort of wanted a faster tempo. Uh, so Goldman Sachs uh, had me in to interview for a macroeconomics job, and I thought, well, I don't really know a lot of macroeconomics, but I do know about how the Federal Reserve operates, how the payment system operates, how the plumbing works, how reserves you know, move through the system. And I think they liked the fact that I knew about how things worked at sort of a micro level, so they hired me to do macroeconomics. So you were chief U.S. economist for, for a decade um, over a, a really fascinating period. Um, really, the heart of the bull market. Tell us a little bit uh, what you remember from that role in that era. 
Well, I remember how uh, how how it was a period of sort of stars for uh, for 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 equity analysts, uh, mm-hmm. much more than it is today. And one of the biggest stars was Abby Joseph Cohen, sure. who was the equity analyst for uh, Goldman Sachs. Uh, so trying to find some space between Abby and your audience was a little bit challenging. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but you know, we I focus mostly on fixed income and foreign exchange, so there was sort of room for me to to to, to do my business. Probably the highlight of my career at Goldman Sachs was that, I can't remember exactly the year, but it was in the early 2000s when people in the markets were, couldn't figure out if the Fed was going to move by 25 basis points or by 50 basis points. And unlike today, going into the meeting, it really was 50-50. Right. Um, and Lloyd Blankfein called me up the night before and sort of said, you know, we have a lot of risk on uh, on this notion that they're going to do 50. Uh, how, do you f- how do you feel about that? And that was my call. I said I, I told Lloyd, I said, I don't know what's going to happen, but the probability of 50 is a lot more than 50-50 at this point. Next day, I had to go to Boston for a client meeting. It was really sort of sad mm-hmm. because I wasn't on the floor at the time that the announcement came, but apparently people stood up and cheered for me. <laughs> and it was a 50-point move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got that. So that was probably the highlight. And I, I sort of got to miss the best part of it, frankly. <laughs> so, so after you know more than 20 years at Goldman, you joined the New York Fed in 2007, overseeing domestic and foreign exchange trading operations. 2007, that, that's some timing. It's really, it's after real estate rolled over, but it's kind of before the market peaked and the real trouble began in 08, 09. Yeah, well, I had about uh, seven months of calm, and then this chaos started in August of 2007. I remember it really well because uh, I just finished building this house in West Virginia, and we were taking occupancy uh, in early August, and it was it was literally the same day that BNP Paribas shut off redemptions from some of their mutual funds, caused all sorts of chaos in Europe. And then the question is, well, what are we going to do about adding liquidity in the U.S.? So didn't get out of the house, my new house, for the next two days as we tried to figure out how to calm markets uh, after the BNP Paribas uh, event. And, and the U.S. market kept going higher. I don't think we peaked till like October 07, something like that. Yeah, people didn't really understand the, the, the consequences of subprime. Uh, you know, I thought... For years. I mean, literally for years, it's, if you it, mentioned it, it, you would be mocked on TV. Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing I am proud about when I joined the Fed is in January 2007, that was my first briefing of the FOMC, and I actually talked about how this could turn out poorly. You know, that subprime was being supported by, you know, subprime was being, you know, the Credit was flowing to subprime. Subprime was enabling people to buy houses. Home prices were going up. As because home prices were going up, subprime wasn't a problem. Right. But at some point, supply was going to increase in response to the higher home prices. And once prices stopped going up, subprime was going to start to go the wrong direction. I said, this is a possibility. I didn't say it was going to happen, but I said it was a possibility. So I was sort of pleased that I got off on the right track. And, and then in January 2009, we, we're deep into the financial crisis, we're post-Lehman and post-AIG, you get named 10th president, CEO of the New York Fed. Again, fantastic timing. Uh, what was taking up your attention right in the midst of, uh, of the cri- financial crisis? Well, you know, that was a tremendously fortunate event for me. I always tell people, like, Barack Obama had to become president 
Tim Geithner had to become Treasury Secretary, and then the Board of Directors in your Fed had to pick me. So it's sort of like a low probability times a low probability times a low probability. So Some, I, sometimes it works out. Yeah, you know, sort of a bank, a bank, a triple bank shot. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of things we were focused on at the time was trying to provide support to financial markets. So if you remember, we were, we were still rolling out various facilities like mm-hmm. the, the the term asset-backed lending facility, for example. Um, you know, we were running the commercial paper funding facility. We were trying to figure out how to do stress test, the first stress test of banks. Right. So that was a big job in the spring of, of 2009. And those stress tests were probably the critical turning point in the financial crisis. I remember the, the day after we published the stress test, and for the Fed, we were actually pretty transparent about like mm-hmm. what we did and what our assumptions were, and here's the results. Um, uh, Bridgewater published a piece, and I think the headline said something like, "We agree," and I, and I, and I said, "Okay, we've now that's that's really important because if our analysis is viewed as credible, and we have the TARP money being able to supply the capital that's needed." Then people can start to rest assured that the banking system is is going to stabilize and and it's going to stop deteriorating. Now it also helped that the economy was showing signs of bottoming out, right. so it didn't look like we're just heading down into a, a deep hole. But you know it was very touch 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 and go there in the first part of 2009, and there you know there were still some major financial firms that were pretty darn shaky. I mean, Citi was pretty shaky, mm-hmm. Morgan Stanley was pretty shaky, uh, some of the banks were still pretty shaky. So it, it, you know in, until you actually hit bottom and start to pull up, you're really wondering, are you going to get through this in, in one piece? So so the Bridgewater piece raises a really interesting question. The New York Fed is kind of, I don't know how to say this, first amongst the regional feds because you're located right in the heart of the financial community. What is the communication like back and forth between the New York Fed and major players uh, in finance, uh, especially in the midst of a crisis like that. So the New York Fed is sort of unique among central banking entities because most central banks they they do the policy and strategy and the operations all in the same place. Mm-hmm. But in the Fed is split. You have policy done in Washington. The operational implementa- implementation of that policy, almost all of that takes place at, at the New York Fed. So the New York Fed is sort of the eyes and ears of, of the Federal Reserve for markets. Um, I think that you know one thing that helped me a lot during the financial crisis is I knew a lot of people on Wall Street. And so when something was happening, I could call up people I knew and, and just ask their opinion recognizing that oftentimes their opinion does have a touch of self-interest. Sure. So you need to talk to three or four people to sort of triangulate and figure out what you think is really going on. I mean, I'll give you an example of one thing that really struck me during the uh, that period. I called up someone and I said, uh, Here's a complex, uh, you know, CDO uh, uh, obligation. You know, with you know, with all these different mortgages and all these different tranches. How long would it take you to actually go through that and value it appropriately to come up with an appropriate valuation? He said, "Oh, it'd take at least two or three weeks." Really? And I thought, "Oh boy, we're in big trouble." Wow! You know, if you don't really know what things are worth uh, when you're going through a period of financial stress, that's going to be make things much, much more difficult. I would have guessed they would break that up into five parts, give it to a bunch of juniors, and they'd have an answer in three hours well, at the most. It scared me. Wow. It scared I, me. I, I can imagine. Um, so, so from the New York Fed, you ultimately end up as vice chairman of the FOMC, helping to formulate U.S. monetary policy. Um, what was that like going from New York to, uh, to D.C.? 
Well, it wasn't such a big change because I had already been going to the FOMC meetings and briefing the, 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 the FOMC members. As president of the New York Fed, you have a seat what, on what, that. What, what happened, though, is, is, is I sort of switched sides. So there, so the, <laughs> the, the day that Tim Geithner was named Treasury Secretary was basically the day before an FOMC meeting. Mm-hmm. And I literally didn't know when I went down to Washington that Monday evening whether I was going to be briefing the FOMC participants or whether I was going to be an FOMC participant myself. So I actually prepared two sets of notes. Here's my briefing notes if I'm on the sole SOMA manager, and here's my remarks if I'm the president of your feds. Wow. So I was ready for both. And what happened that day? Uh, he was he was named on that Monday, and so on Tuesday I was I was the I was the president of New York Fed. Wow. And um, you know I didn't you know so I and I, when I got back to New York on uh, you know I think Thursday morning, uh, I we had a town hall and I gave my first remarks to the New York Fed uh, people and had a very simple message for them. Best idea wins. Uh, Because I was really struck by uh, how hierarchical uh, uh, central banks tend to be. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to sort of push against that idea and basically say, it doesn't matter where the idea comes. If it's the best idea, that's the idea that should win out. Makes a lot of sense. And and since then, you've gone on to do some work reforming LIBOR as the benchmark for rates. Tell us, I always get the name SOFRA, the new one that replaced Sofra, it. SOFRA, yeah. Uh, so, so tell us a little bit about the work you did, because LIBOR was probably the most important number, certainly in credit, maybe in all of finance. So LIBOR, for a while, was there was a real question whether central banks were going to take this on or not. And I remember I was in Basel for the BIS meetings, and I wrote a one-page memo to to Ben Bernanke to hand to Mervyn King. Mervyn King was the head of the sort of the policymaking group at the BIS at the time, mm-hmm. and the memo was basically arguing why central banks needed to own the LIBOR problem because if they didn't own it, it wouldn't get fixed. It'd be a problem again, and then the central banks would be blamed for well, why didn't you fix that problem? So I don't know if, how much important that memo had, but I was very pleased to see the central banks take it up. And as you know, it was a huge undertaking, which took you know many, many years to complete. And, and, and for those people who may not be familiar with uh, the London interbank- um, Offered rate. Offered rate, uh, literally was a survey where they'd call up various bond desks and say, so what are you charging for an overnight loan? And eventually, traders figured out they could game that by- uh, let's just call it talking their books, so to speak, in a way that would move the LIBOR uh, in their direction. You could you could do a bunch of things with derivatives, and eventually LIBOR kind of spiraled out of control. The new improved version. How do we prevent that from taking place? What what were the structural changes? Well, the, the problem. I mean, the problem of, of LIBOR was that you had a small cash LIBOR market that was was referencing a very large futures market, euro dollar futures market, and so you had a situation where you could take big positions in the euro dollar market, affect the price in the cash market, and actually make a profit. So the sort of the tail was wagging the dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, for SOFR, the secured overnight funding rate for repo, um, you have a big repo market. I mean, it's you know hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. So mm-hmm. the idea, and it's a real market. I mean, there's real transactions that are traded, and you can sort of track what the prices are and where trades are. So it's so it's almost impossible to imagine someone manipulating the this uh, SOFR market. Huh, really, really interesting. So, so first, before we start talking about 
policy, I have to ask, you're at Goldman Sachs for 20 years and, and you get the phone call to join the New York Fed. Um, what was that like? Was that a tough call or was that an easy decision to make? Well, what happened actually is Tim Geithner called me uh, several months earlier and said, would you like to come over to be a senior advisor? And I said, I'd love to be a senior advisor to you, Tim, but what do I do with the rest of my you know, 40, 50 hour work week? <laughs> and he didn't have really a good answer for that. Was this a full-time gig? I mean, yeah, leaving he was, the economist position? When I left Goldman, I didn't really know what my next thing was. Mm-hmm. So I did not have the next job. I was just assuming that I would, I would something would come along that right. would be, Fair be, assumption. be interesting. <laughs> so he, he offered that and I thought, well, you know, I, I, you know, Tim and I had a very good relationship and you know, I, I certainly liked the idea of working for him, but I thought a senior advisor was a little bit too unformed. And a couple months later, he came back and said, can you run the markets group at the New York Fed? That's completely different. You're mm-hmm. running the group that actually implements monetary policy, oversees market analysis, uh, de- deals with the primary dealer community. Uh, that was a real opportunity. So that one, I didn't have to think very hard about. And, and what's what? not long after Tim gets elevated, you, you take the role of New York uh, Fed president, what's a day in the life of a uh, New York Fed pres like? There's a lot to to do because New York Fed does lots of different things. So you, you know we have supervision. We oversee some of the largest financial institutions in the world from a supervisory perspective. Uh, we're the international arm of the Fed. Uh, so pretty much every two months, I would go to the, to the BIS in Basel, mm-hmm. be part of the Bank for International Settlement meetings. Uh, New York Fed president, uh, as as well as the chairman of the uh, of the board of governors, is on the board of directors of the BIS. As Alan Blinder once joked. To me, he says New York Fed is the only uh, only uh, uh, institution that's treated it like their their own country <laughs> because they have this board of directors position. Um, you know, there's lots of things and you know payments. The Fed, New York Fed runs uh, Fedwire. Uh, the the New York Fed runs uh, central bank international services for a bunch of foreign central banks. Uh, they have I don't know three four trillion dollars of custody assets from wow. foreign. So there's a lot there's lots of pieces to the Fed. Um, and then there's a research department, uh, and there's a lot of outreach to try to get information about what's really happening in the world. I mean, the one thing that I did that was probably a little new from the Fed's perspective is I tried to broaden out the, the people that the New York Fed was talking to. Historically, the New York Fed had typically uh, talked mainly to the primary dealer community, mm-hmm. so that's where they obtained their information from. And I thought that that was too narrow. We need we need we need a broader set of perspectives. And so I hired a, a woman named uh, Haley Boski, uh, who came in and, and really built out a whole operation so we could actually interact not just with the sell side, but also with the buy side. Huh. And so we started an advisory pe- uh, group of people from you know, hedge funds, pension funds, insurance companies, you know, buy side investors. And so we'd have them in periodically to talk to. And so we got a much broader network of information that we could sort of take on board. And I think that's valuable because you know, where you sit really does influence your perspective. And you sort of want to understand what biases and you know, self-promotion sometimes that people are talking their book that you want to be able to make sure you, you don't get uh, fooled by that. Now, you could go back not all that far in the Fed history and there was none of this communication. There wasn't a, a transcripts released. There wasn't um, a, a reporter scrum and, and a Q&A. There wasn't even an announcement of change in interest rates. You had to follow the bond market to see when rates changed. What are the pros and cons of being so clear and so transparent with market participants is the risk that maybe we're too clear? 
Well, I think there's a strong argument uh, in favor of transparency as opposed to opacity. Um, and you know, this has been debated within the Fed for many years. I mean, Alan Greenspan, Paul Volcker definitely preferred to be opaque. I mean, Alan Greenspan famously said, "If you understand, if you think you understand what I said, then I wasn't it wasn't unclear enough, <laughs> or something to that effect." Right. Um, so, I, the, the value of transparency is is that if markets understand how the Federal Reserve is going to react to incoming information, the market can essentially price in what the Fed hasn't even yet done. And so that can make monetary policy work much more rapidly. So let's think about it today. So the market is pricing in roughly five to six 25 basis point rate cuts between now and the end of the year. So that means monetary policy is easier, even though the Federal Reserve hasn't cut rates yet. Uh, so the they do some of the work for the Fed. Yeah, for them. And, and it makes it. And it also means that as new coming information is coming in, the market can reprice. And so that can cause the impulse of the economic news to be filtered into financial conditions much more more quickly. Uh, I'm a big believer in financial conditions as a framework for thinking about monetary policy. Mm-hmm. You know, twenty something years ago, Jan Hatzius and I introduced the Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Index, and it took about. 20 plus years for the Federal Reserve to sort of endorse it. I mean, Jay Powell talks about financial conditions uh-huh. a lot more than any other chair of the Fed ever has. The reason why financial conditions are so important is in the United States, the economy doesn't really run on short-term interest rates. It really runs on how short-term interest rates affect long-term rates, mortgage rates, mm-hmm. stock market, the dollar, credit spreads. You know, we have a big capital market compared to other countries, and so short-term rates are not really the driver. Now, if short-term rates and financial conditions were, you know, rigidly connected, so if I move the short-term rate by X, I, I know exactly how much financial conditions are moved by Y, you don't, wouldn't have to worry about financial conditions. But there's actually a lot of give between the two. And so financial conditions can move a lot, even as short-term interest rates haven't changed very much. I mean, a good example is just the last three months. Mm-hmm. Last three months, since the end of October till now, financial conditions have eased dramatically. I mean, the Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Index has moved by about a one and a half per, uh, per points, which is a big move for that mm-hmm. index, um, even as the Fed hasn't done anything in terms of short-term rates. So part of the problem with everybody anticipating Fed actions is there's a tendency for many people, sometimes most people, to get it wrong. Wall Street has been um, anticipating a Fed cut for, what is it now? This, we're in the seventh month, eighth month of, hey, if the Fed's going to start cutting any, any day now. Um, what does it mean when anticipating Fed actions almost becomes a Wall Street parlor game and there's less focus on on – What's happening in the broad economy and more focus on, well, what does the second and third derivative of this mean to this economist advising this Fed governor and the impact on the FOMC? I mean, sometimes I think you're right that there's almost too much focus on what's going to happen at the next meeting. I mean, you know, when you go to the press conference now, Powell's just asked multiple different varieties of the question. Okay, so what would cause you to move at, at, at the March meeting or at, or at the May meeting? And, of course, Powell's not going to answer that question, you know, because it depends. It depends on how the economy evolves between now uh, and then. Um, so I think, you know, one of the problems I think you have is that the Federal Reserve does publish a forecast, uh, the Summary of Economic Projections, which is the forecast of all the 19 FOMC participants. So that gives you an idea of what they sort of think is going to happen at any given point in time. But those forecasts are, you know, not particularly reliable, uh, and so as all forecasts, yeah, are it's all forecasts are. So you, you don't want to you don't want to take it sort of literally. 
but it, you know, like right now, there's a bit of a a, a gap, right? The Fed's talking about three rate cuts in 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 twenty twenty four, and the market's got five to six priced in. So, you know, what will happen is the economic news will come out, and that'll drive make the Fed either go more quickly or more slowly, and mm-hmm. that that will, will, will what actually is is important. So I I always tell people focus on the data more than what the Federal Reserve says beyond the next meeting. Although, to be fair, and I find this perplexing, say what people will say about Jerome Powell. He has said what his position is, is. he has said what he's going to do, and then he has done exactly that for the past three years, and it's almost as if Wall Street just doesn't believe him. Like, no, no, we're not going to cut this year. You got got three or four quarters. Settle down. No, no, cut next month, says Wall Street. He has said what he meant and then stuck to it, and yet the street seems to doubt him. Well, there's two reasons why the market could disagree with the Fed. One is they could misunderstand the Fed's reaction function. So you give them the Fed a set of economic data, how are they going to react to it? But it also could be a disagreement about how the economy itself is going to evolve. The mm-hmm. Fed might be more optimistic or more pessimistic on the economy than than market participants. Right now, it's really hard to sort of say what, what's the, what's the disagreement about. Does Wall Street think the economy is going to be weaker than the Fed does, or does the or, or does the market just think that the uh, Fed is going to be more aggressive than the Fed thinks at this point? Right. Uh, sometimes it just looks like pure wishful thinking. I think sometimes the market sort of gets gets ahead of itself. It's almost like there's. We're now talking about easing, so the bell's about to go off, and I don't want to miss out, and so I'm going to be pretty aggressive about positioning for that. And I, th- I think there's a little bit of, you know, and sometimes things tend to go too far because people get caught off sides, and then people have to close out the, the trades that went wrong, and so everyone's sort of moving all, all at once to the other side of the boat, and so things can get overdone. At the end of the day, though, I mean, the Fed Reserve, you know, writes the story. You know, the market has to converge to what the Fed ultimately does, and so this is why the Fed's not particularly ner- worried about when the market prices in more or less, because at the end of the day, the Fed's view is, you know, we'll do what we need to do, and the market will have to come along with us. It, it, it's inevitable. So, so we mentioned Jerome Powell. He's been as clear as any Fed chief uh, in history. What are your thoughts on how the modern Federal Reserve communicates with markets and the public today versus how they used to do it? I, I, you know, you don't have to go that far back, 20 years ago. I think it's, as I said earlier, I think it's a lot better way of communicating because then markets can understand what the Fed is up to. They can interpret economic information in real time and figure out what that means for the likely path of short-term rates. So financial conditions can move long before the Federal Reserve actually uh, acts. Now, obviously, you know there's 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 a risk in all this because what the Fed says uh, may not be borne out by the economic information. And so I think the important thing in all this is not to take what the Federal Reserve says as gospel uh, when they have a forecast that's their forecast today and that forecast will change as the incoming information uh, warrants it I think where Paul has done a really good job is being very clear about uh, his commitment to getting inflation back down to two percent because the biggest risk over the last couple of years was that people would start to doubt the Fed's uh, willingness to be tough uh, and, 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 and finish the job. And if that were to happen, inflation expectations would have become unanchored, uh, and that would have made the Fed's job a lot more difficult. One of the great developments of the last couple of years is even though we did have a period of very high inflation, 
long-term inflation expectations really stayed unanchored through that entire period. And so Powell deserves quite a bit of credit for that. So, so we're recording this a few days after his 60 Minutes interview broadcast. Um, some things that I took away from that. First, it's a complicated job with a, a lot of moving parts. And second, the Fed as an institution is apolitical. It, it, they serve the public, not any one branch or any one party uh, of the electorate. I thought he was very intelligent and reassuring. What was your reaction to that interview? I thought it was a very good interview, and I thought he actually broke a little new, bit of new ground when he talked about the you know the fiscal sustainability issue, and he also talked about the importance of the U.S. Uh, role in the world. Uh, in terms, I, I picked that up also. I thought of, that was um, the first time I've heard a Fed chief talk about liberal democracy is an important aspect of global leadership. Yeah, exactly. And so I thought that was a, a, a very noteworthy uh, a new new piece. Uh, I thought the rest of it was, you know, pretty much tracked, you know, his remarks at the press conference. Um, you know, I think that, you know, it's good for him to get out there and sort of demystify the Fed. I mean, the, the Fed is, you know, not so, in, you know, easy for the average person to understand. And so going on 60 Minutes is, is, a, is a good idea from, from, from time to time. I thought he did a, you know, I thought he did a good job. I thought he was very, very clear. Um, you know, this is, this is not the first Fed chair that's been on 60 Minutes. Uh, Bernanke has done it. Yeah, right? Bernanke has done it. I, I'm not, I can't remember if Janet Yellen did it or not, but... Um, uh, you know, she definitely did it as Treasury Secretary. We, I don't we, remember we, if we, she did it as... Uh, we've been very lucky in terms of the leadership of the Fed. I mean, to have... Uh, I mean, Greenspan obviously, you know, was on sort of without parallel. And then, and then to have Bernanke, Yellen, and Powell... In a row, those are three exceptionally good uh, Fed chair. I mean, my only you know critique of the Fed, and you know, I write for Bloomberg, and you know, sometimes I you know I say what I th what I think and let the chips fall where they may. The one the one I think mistake the Fed made you know over the last few years was they were really really late to get off the dime in terms of starting to tighten monetary policy. Now, isn't that historically true? Is so the Fed throughout the 2010s were late to recognize, hey, we don't have to be on emergency footing anymore. Not only were they late to start tightening in, in 2001, they, they, 2021, they were late to recognize inflation peaked in 22. I mean, it's you could easily make the argument that they could have begun cutting any this meeting, last meeting, two meetings ago. Take the past six months of inflation, we're at 2%. Yeah, I think the reason why they're not cutting yet is, is, is there's really two reasons for that. Number one, the economy is a lot stronger than they thought it was mm -hmm. going to be. And so- that means the risk of waiting is a lot lower than they thought it was going to be, because the economy, you know, grew three, three over three percent in the fourth quarter. Uh, the Atlanta Fed uh, GDP now forecast for the first quarter is over four percent. I mean, obviously, it probably won't be that strong when all the data comes in, but the economy has a lot of momentum, and mm -hmm. so the pressure on the Fed to cut rates because of weakness in growth, weakness in the labor market just isn't there, and that allows them to be more patient. The second thing is important is, is a little bit of delay is not going to have a huge consequence because, look, what's happened to financial conditions over the last few months? They've, They've eased, eased dramatically. Yeah. So the Fed's already getting a lot of additional support to the economy without actually having to cut, cut rates. In some ways, the Fed can sort of have its cake Keep you know show that they're tough minded and they're going to get inflation all the way down. Let 2%. the market do the work and, for them, and 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 you know they can have their cake and eat it too, and have the market basically ease financial conditions and provide support to the economy. So I think it's you know it's worked out very well from the Fed's perspective. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. 
Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. So, so you mentioned you, you uh, contribute to Bloomberg Opinion. Um, one of the criticisms that uh, took place in the prior administration was then-President Trump kind of haranguing um, Jay Powell to cut rates. And you wrote an op-ed after you had left the Fed saying the Fed shouldn't enable Donald Trump. In other words, the independence of the institution is much more important than any one rate cut or rate hike at, at, at any time. T tell us about that. That generated a, a lot of controversy. Yeah, I think people, you know, I, I probably didn't say it the way I needed to say it. Uh, it was really more of a thought experiment about how, you know, if the Fed Reserve really cares about the country, they just need to, you know, and the economy, which is their mandate, uh, they just need to do the right thing uh, uh, and, and let the chips fall where they may. Um, I think that, you know the the Trump administration's attacks on the Fed, I think, are really you know counterproductive for the Trump administration, and they're also damaging to the Fed, because if the Fed is viewed as politicized, uh, that basically reduces people's trust in 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 the central bank, and I think if the f trust in the central bank is reduced, that makes the Federal Reserve less effective as an institution. One reason why I think the Fed you know doesn't take politics into consideration. And in, in my experience, I was at the FOMC table for 11 and a half years, never talked about politics, never consideration in terms of monetary policy decisions for a very simple reason. If you start to take politics into consideration, you politicize the Fed. And if you politicize the Fed, you've basically compromised the independence of the Fed and its ability to be effective. So you just don't want to go down that path at all. And I think, you know, I think Jay Powell completely understands that. And 
you know, I, I give him a lot of credit. I mean, when, when Trump was attacking him pretty vociferously, uh, Powell did not rise to the bait. Uh, he, he was completely silent. He just did his job. Uh, it's got to be tough to be, you know, being beaten up publicly. Um, By the president. But, but he showed a tremendous amount of discipline. And I think that basically, you know, enhanced the credibility and independence of the Fed. So that comment we were discussing earlier that he made on 60 Minutes, he, here's the quote. There's a real desire for American leadership since World War II. The U.S. has been the indispensable nation supporting and defending democracy, security arrangements, and economic arrangements. We're the leading voice on that. It's clear the world wants that. I would want the people in the U.S. in the United States to know this has benefited our country enormously. It benefits our economy so much to have this role, and I just hope that continues. Am I reading too much into that to say, hey, this is an argument against President Trump, who is trying to realign the world and pull back from U.S. leadership? I think it's, I think it's a something that Chair Paul very much believes in that U.S. engagement in the world leads to better outcomes, both in a security perspective, economic perspective absolutely essential for, for addressing issues like climate change. And I think he was just expressing his opinion. Um, obviously, if if there is a next Trump administration and they, they decide to file fo- follow a very isolationist policy, um, I imagine that, you know, Powell will not agree with that, but I think he'll be very silent about the fact that he doesn't agree with it because he won't want to, you know, engage in that political process because that will compromise the independence of the Fed. So so to your point, uh, this was pretty, you know, this is a, a step out for Powell relative mm-hmm. to what he said, but there was nothing in there about who was in favor of what. Uh, it's so, not a political statement. It's not a political statement. It's a fact statement. that, hey, this U.S. leadership in global economics has done it's, nothing but benefit the country. Yeah, it's his opinion that this, this is in the U.S.'s uh, interest. It has been in the U.S. interest. It's in the U.S. interest today, and it will be in the U.S. interest in the future. That's his, his view. And then I have to say I, I very much agree with it. I, I don't disagree. And if there are some candidates that don't have that belief system, well, is that being political or is that just here's a historical fact, this is what's helped the U.S.? Well, I think he's allowed to you know have his have his beliefs. And I don't think that you know his his, this belief that he's expressed is should be viewed as a controversial one. Uh, I think that's 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 something that you know a, 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 a high uh, number of people in the country I think would would would, would support. Uh, I, I don't disagree at all. So so let's talk a little bit about the the history uh, of the Federal Reserve, starting with the dual mandate: price stability, namely inflation, and and unemployment. How does the Fed balance those two, and what are the data points that they follow most closely? So the Fed's due mandate was actually established by Congress, not by the Fed. Mm-hmm. Congress, in the Humphrey Hawkins Act, basically said, here's what we want the Fed to do. Uh, we, want, we want to have the maximum sustainable employment in the country, consistent with price stability, which the Fed then subsequently defined to be 2% inflation. <laughs> um, and so the Fed basically is trying to manage the economy with both these goals in mind. And sometimes one of the goals 
turns out to be more significant because the Fed's doing more poorly on 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 on, on that side. So over the last couple of years, the problem was not the, that that the economy was far away from full employment. The economy was either at full employment or maybe even a little beyond full employment. When we saw how tight the labor market was, especially in uh, twenty twenty two. Um, so the Fed's focus was on inflation because inflation was well above the Fed's two percent objective. What's happened recently is inflation's come down, uh, and so the Fed can start to talk about both sides of the mandate, not just the inflation side, but also the the uh, the, the labor market side. And so now you're going to see a lot more balanced messaging from the Fed. Now the good news from the Fed is that things are going really really well. Uh, you, know, you know, the inflation on a six-month change basis for the core PCE deflator, which is the Fed's, you know, preferred measure of inflation, is tracking 2%. So all we need is another six months of the same, as, as Chair Powell said in his press conference, and we're basically at the Fed's 2% objective. And the labor market's doing gangbusters, frankly. I mean, payroll employment growth over 300,000 last month. Uh, so we have sort of the best of both worlds. Inflation's come down and the labor market is still very, very robust. So, you know, it's, it's interesting when you look at polling results of, of Americans, they're, they're very unhappy about the economy. Um, and what they're unhappy about is how much prices went up over the last four, four not years. Not current rate of inflation, exactly. but absolute prices. It's a price level problem, not mm-hmm. an inflation rate problem. Because if you look at the so-called misery index, which economists like to talk Very about, low. which is the sum of inflation plus the unemployment rate, it's really at a historically low yeah. level. So, you know, I think what's going to happen over time is is if we keep inflation, you know, around 2%, uh, some of the unhappiness about the price level will gradually fade away. People just sort of start to accept it, and then uh, people start to assess the economy in a more favorable way. Uh, for for the Biden administration, there's a little bit of race going on, right? Will this change in, in, in sentiment occur fast enough uh, relative to the November uh, election? They got seven months to hope that the polling data the economic data is going yeah, in consumer, their favor. Consumer confidence, though, it, do, it does seem to be improving. I mean, if right. you look at the most recent consumer confidence surveys, it does look like consumer confidence is improving. So people are starting to you know, understand that the inflation rate does seem to be much lower. But they're still very unhappy. Because, you know, when you go to the grocery store, you just remember that this thing that I bought for you know, $3 you know, four, four years ago now costs four fifty, right. And, you know, that just... Every time you go to the grocery store or you go to the gas station, you see you're reminded by about the higher price right. lev- level. I see it more in the grocery store than um, uh, gas stations because yeah, no, gas is three and change, and 20 years ago, gas was three and change. Yeah. That's been flat for two decades, but food prices definitely have, uh, and shelter prices have moved up. So before I get to 2%, because I have a lot of questions about that, let, let's talk a little bit about the the labor market. So first, we're again we're recording this February 2023. We just had a giant number, a giant upside surprise in payrolls. Uh, when the Fed looks at at that number, are they thinking, well, you know, it's January, there are a lot of one-time adjustments and seasonal uh, affects, or are they saying, hey, this labor market is really booming, we can sit back a little bit? A little bit of both. I mean, in other words, you get you you understand that the data is noisy, mm-hmm. and so reality is not exactly what the data is is telling you. The data is you know it's, it's, it's samples. You know they go out and poll people, and so there's sampling bias. Also, in the winter, things get very affected by the weather. Right. Uh, as you go from you know 
warm weather, you know, warm winter weather months to cold winter weather months when you go from rain to snowfall. So uh, the Fed basically doesn't take one month as sort of gospel truth. They look at the the the, the pattern and the, and the underlying trend. And you know, on that underlying trend, the labor market looks quite strong. So the Fed is taking a signal from that, and that's one reason why they're more patient about uh, cutting cutting interest rates because they sort of feel like. You know, we can wait a little bit longer, and the risk that we're taking is very low because look at how strong the U.S. labor market is. So, so let's talk about not one month, but the past couple of years of the labor market. You have enormous number of people who are out on disability. We've reduced legal immigration for for jobs dramatically. Um, early retirements have been taking place. A giant uptick in new business. Um, formation. So that's a big group of people who aren't in the hiring pool. They're actually running their own firms. It seems like all the issues that have been taking place in the labor market, including the wage size side, is that we just don't have enough bodies to put to work in the United States. I think that was true a year ago. I think it's l- less true today. Uh, if you look at you know the ratio of unfilled jobs to unemployed workers, that peaked at around two to one. Yeah, it was you. It was a, a, a almost record high. And now it's about one and a half to one. So the labor market is still really tight, but it's not quite as tight. The also thing we got a, a a big positive surprise last year in terms of the labor force growth. Uh, Meaning la- people coming back into people the coming labor. back into the labor force, and and also immigration, legal immigration into the U.S. picked up dramatically last year. I mean, so essentially, we didn't have much legal immigration at all during the COVID period, right? Uh, and then all of a sudden, we get a big bubble of that in in 2023. And so, what you've had is big, strong growth in payroll employment, but it hasn't translated through into a decline in the unemployment rate. Mm-hmm. So, looking at the unemployment rate, the labor market is no tighter than it was a year ago, which is, you know, was a huge positive benefit to to the U.S. economy and to the Fed, uh, because if we'd had that growth in payroll employment without the increase in the labor force, the labor market would be too tight, wages would be too high, and the Federal Reserve would still be worried about it, too high inflation. And, and we've seen wages go up. I think for the past six months, real wages are actually growing faster than. Well, inflation. Well, that's one reason why the economy is staying, uh, you know, relatively strong. I mean, uh, as inflation comes down uh, and nominal wages, you know, inflation comes down maybe a little bit less slow, more slowly. Uh, real, real, real incomes increase, and that supports the consumer spending. So, I think the unwinding of goods price pressures, which is really the big driver of why inflation's come down, that's sort of a windfall for consumers right now. Uh, and so that's actually sustaining real consumer spending. And, and that shift from goods back to services, which is more or less where we were pre-pandemic, is certainly easing um, prices in that in that sector. Yeah, I mean, all the supply chain disruptions that we had, you know, a few years ago, caused by that shift in demand from services to goods that just sort of overwhelmed the capacity of the mm-hmm. world to bring those goods to the U.S. in a timely way. That's 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 all unwound at this point. So, so let's talk about the two percent um, inflation target. Your colleague Roger Ferguson, uh, in the Council on Foreign Relations last year, criticized the two percent inflation target as something that randomly originated from New Zealand, and surprisingly, it came not from an academic study, but from an offhand comment during the television interview in the 1980s. Uh, is Ferguson right? Is this really just a big 
silly round number? Well, it's true that the Reserve Bank of New Zealand started by you know picking the two percent number, and then other central banks followed. But I think there are some logical reasons why they followed. Two uh, percent was low enough that it, inflation wasn't going to be sort of important component of people's thinking in terms of their consumption investment decisions. Two um, percent inflation in the U.S. I think the Fed could argue that that was mostly consistent with price stability. Mm-hmm. You know, prices are only going to d- double at two percent inflation compounded every thirty-five years. Um, so, so. But you're right; it was arbitrary. They could have picked a different number. They could have picked, you know, three percent or one percent. Um, the reason why you want to have a little bit of inflation is it is it really allows you to do two things. Number one, it provides a little bit of uh, grease in the labor market because people don't like their nominal wages to be cut. Right. And but relative wage rates have to change, and so if you have a little bit of inflation, it makes the labor market work more efficiently in terms of allowing uh, wage adjustments that allow workers to be distributed appropriately. So that's the first thing. The second reason why you want a little bit of inflation is that if you have a little bit of inflation, the the nominal federal funds rate can be a little bit higher. Mm -hmm. And so when you go into an economic downturn, the Federal Reserve has more room to cut interest rates before they hit the zero lower bound for interest rates of zero. So people who are arguing for a higher inflation target today are basically arguing like it would be better to have even more room for the Fed to cut rates. Mm Because if the inflation target was three rather than two, the peak federal funds rate in the cycle would be one percentage point higher, so the Fed would have more room to cut rates. I think there's virtually no chance that the Fed's going to change their 2% inflation. Really? Virtually no chance. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, Congress sets the mandate for the Fed, and they define it as price stability. The Fed has stretched that a bit to call that 2% inflation. Mm Mm-hmm. I think stretching it a little bit farther to call it 3% inflation, that's a bit of a stretch. The second reason I think that they're not going to move from 2% inflation is it's taken the Fed a long time to get inflation expectations anchored around 2%. Mm-hmm. If you move from 2% to 3%, all of a sudden inflation expectations become unanchored. And it's not obvious that you can get them re-anchored back at 3% because if you're willing to change the target once, why wouldn't you, why couldn't you change the target again? especially in a situation where the U.S. is running a massive fiscal deficit, huge fiscal problems, and people always wonder, well, one way out of a a fiscal mess is is inflation and to monetize the debt. So I don't think you're going to do it for that reason. The last reason why I don't think they're going to do it is there's plenty of room to cut interest rates. Federal funds rates over five and a quarter percent. So if the economy gets in trouble, over the next year, the Fed has plenty of room to cut rates before they get to the zero lower bound for interest they, rates. They could do 350 basis point cuts, and you're still way above exactly. that target. So I, it's just not going to happen. Uh, this is sort of an academic debate. I, I don't think it's a true Fed huh. Reserve debate. Re- really, really interesting. So, so let's talk a little bit about different Fed policies over the past decades and, and how those decisions have aged. Um, let's start with last decade, the 2010s. Fed rates were essentially zero the whole time, and yet we couldn't get CPI to budge above 2%. The whole decade following the financial crisis, uh, what made that so challenging for monetary policymakers? Well, I think the problem coming out of the great financial crisis was how much damage was done to people's balance sheets mm-hmm. and to their, you know, credit scores. And their, when you and say their, people, you mean households, ha- you mean corporations, or everybody? Households mostly, but also businesses. There's just a tremendous amount of damage uh, caused by that very deep recession. You know, think of all the households who came out of that period where where the the value of their mortgage was higher than the value of their home. 
think of all the people that were delinquent on their on their um, obligations, and so then got bad credit scores, and then that reduced their ac- access to credit. So there were a lot of headwinds. The other thing that happened was fiscal policy that was eased pretty dramatically uh, when Barack Obama became president. That got clawed back very, very quickly in 2011 and 12. So there were fiscal headwinds that we haven't faced this time around that also held the economy back. So you're absolutely right. The Fed's challenge during that period was to make monetary policy accommodative enough to support the economy sufficiently to keep inflation at 2%. Now, the Fed fell a little bit short of their inflation objective, but, you know, if you really look at where we were, you know, on the eve of the pandemic in February 2020, it was a pretty good place. Right. You know, and, and the if, fact that it took a decade is says more about the lack of fiscal spending and, and of Congress a, than what the Fed did. And you had a very long expansion. I mean, the mm-hmm. reality is the expansion would have kept going except for the COVID pandemic. Hmm. Really interesting. So, so let's talk about the prior decade, the 2000s. You had a speech around 2014 where you said the Fed was late in recognizing how long they kept rates low um, for and that the liftoff from 04 to 06 should have happened faster and sooner. Uh, tell us a little bit about what the lessons were from that episode and um, what the Fed should have done uh, in the early 2000s. So there's been a bit big debate going on for many, many years about you know, how should the Fed respond to financial imbalances in the economy? You know, how should they respond to sort of incipient bubbles? Uh, the Greenspan view was it's very hard to recognize bubbles. Uh, it's not clear how you rein them in. So the best thing to do is just sort of let the bubbles take the, run their course and then clean up after the bubble uh, collapses uh, and, and you're in the bust period. Uh, my view has been very much that, no, that's that's not a great strategy because the bursting of the bubble can cause a lot of financial knock-on effects. And so better to identify the bubble uh, in real time and try to sort of rein that bubble in. And I think, you know, if you look at the 2004, 2007, 8 period, boy, it would have been really good if we'd done something about subprime mortgage lending, about mortgage underwriting standards. If we'd done that, we would have had a much smaller housing bubble and we would have had much less damage when that bubble collapsed in, in 2008. So my view has always been, let's let's try to be a little bit more proactive. Now, the problem with, with being proactive is, you know, how do you know it's a bubble? And the reality is you don't. And so it's very hard to convince people to take proactive steps to deal with sort of incipient problems because you can't really be sure uh, with 100% confidence of what's actually going on. Huh. So so you're really pointing out two issues. First, I, I want to say the, the Fed had taken rates under 2% for about three years and under 1% for a year. So that was pretty unprecedented until you know, the post-financial crisis era. But you're also pointing out to the Fed as regulator and, you know, to, to cast blame, Greenspan was very much a anti-regulator. Sorry, a little bit more lazy okay, there. Yeah. Um, and, and he allowed a lot of um, non-GSE, non-traditional banks to make all sorts of loans. It's not like he gave them permission. He just didn't really regulate them. And that's where a lot of the really 
sketchy and the Fed, in subprime came and from. the Fed actually did have some authority in terms of regulating the mortgage market authority that they didn't really use uh, Ned right. Gramlich was a governor at the Fed and he sort of brought his concerns oh to, boy to, did to, he to Alan Greenspan and and nothing really, really happened. I mean, I, I mean, even when I was at Goldman Sachs, you know, and, and working with my uh, successor Jan Hostis, we were very focused on how this mortgage, this housing bubble, was fueling consumption through what was called mortgage equity withdrawal. People were basically taking their you. appreciated gains in their houses and they were pulling it out in terms of, you know, HELOCs, uh, home equity loans, mm-hmm. uh, and we felt that that was also contributing to stronger consumption, and this was going to potentially end quite badly. Uh, Ed Gramlich was an unsung hero of that era because he really identified what was going on in real time and not in a, you know, hair on fire histrionic way. He was very sober and thoughtful and academic and, you know, had had Greenspan paid more attention to Gramlich could have been a very different outcome. Well, I think he would have had a a smaller bubble. Uh, Maybe he'd have less you know, financial innovation, you could wait against some of the AAA CDO stuff. I mean, you know, that, that, that's an, that was, I mean, some of the innovations in the financial industry in terms of products also contributed to the, to, to the bubble, right? Because you managed to sell all these, you know, you you, you took a bat, a bunch of bad subprime mortgages, then you tranched the cash flows and turned these, these, subprime mortgages into 70% AAA rated securities. And so that sort of kept the whole thing going. So the financial engineering was also an aspect of the problem right. that contributed to the to the bubble. The the rating agencies changed their model. They were being paid by the underwriters instead of being paid by the yeah. bond purchasers. That's a big factor that yeah. I think a lot of people overlook. All right, so we could spend forever talking about the financial crisis, but I want to get to the 1990s and we've referenced the maestro um, I was on a trading desk back then, and I always thought Greenspan was way too solicitous. I'm not sure if that's the right word. He was m- way too concerned about how Wall Street perceived him. I- is that a fair criticism of Greenspan? Because it felt like he was much more accommodative of short-term market reactions. Uh, anytime there was a problem, um, for for a laissez-faire Randy, and he went right to, you know, the interventionist policy. So we had the long-term capital management issue. We had the Thai um, crisis and the Russian uh, ruble crisis. And every time there was a hiccup in the markets, Greenspan didn't hesitate to cut rates. I think that's, you know, fair. But at the same time, I think Greenspan, you know, did a reasonable job of keeping inflation control. So the consequences of, you know, of, of coming to the market's aid to sort of, sort of smooth out market dysfunction, you know, didn't have a really negative consequence for inflation. So I think he sort of got mostly got away with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I agree with you. He's probably a little bit more uh, willing to address relatively, you know, small, not large, not per- persistent movements in markets that maybe the Fed could have looked looked past. You know, that said, I mean, you know, his track record was really, you know, really good. I mean, I think the, the the blind spot was really just more about not having this view that we can identify bubbles and we should deal with bubbles in real time rather than waiting for the bubble to burst. And that was that was his big mistake. If you know, if you think about when when Ben Bernanke came in in two thousand six, you know, the die was already cast right. in terms of what what was going to happen at that point. It's just what no one had yet recognized it. 
Yeah, no, there's there's no doubt about that. And in fact, by 06, real estate had peaked. You saw it um, in the home builders and the banks and the brokers. Like there were market signals that there was problems, but the overall stock market kept going until you know late 07. Um, so let's talk. You mentioned earlier about surveys. I always look at surveys askance because a people don't know. And B, even when they know about what's happening today, it tends to be on a lag. And then lastly, they have no idea when you ask, hey, where's inflation going to be five years from now? That that (laughs) seems to be like about as silly a question. Nobody has any idea, much less a layperson. Why do we put so much emphasis on uh, inflation expectations? Well, I, I don't think that – I mean, I think you're right that people don't have a really good sense of – we and we talked about it earlier, price level versus rate of inflation. Um, but it's interesting to see how their views change over time. Mm-hmm. So it's probably not the level of what they perceive inflation is going to be over the next 10 years that's interesting. It's whether they think it's higher or lower than it was you know, a month ago or six months ago, a year ago. Um, the reason why inflation expectations are so important is that if people think inflation expectations are truly going to be higher, then that's going to set the wage setting process and wages are going to be higher. And if wages are going to be higher, that's going to feed into prices and that's going to cause actual inflation to be higher. That, so, that was a very 1970s problem. That seemed to be what why inflation was so sticky yeah. and we had such a hard time until Volcker came along getting getting yeah. out of that cycle. And one good thing is too we have other ways of measuring inflation expectations now that we didn't have 30 years ago. We have the treasury, you know, tips market so we can look mm-hmm. at uh, tips yields versus nominal treasury yields and we can sort of calculate what are people willing to pay for inflation protection and that gives us a sense of how much inflation is embedded into the into in, in people's expectations, do, market do, expectations. Do the inflation expectation surveys and the spread between the tips yield and treasuries, do they correlate well, or are there occasional big divergences? I, 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 think, they, I think they correlate well in the large, mm-hmm. but I don't think they correlate well at all in the small. I mean, one example is people look at uh, tip shields, and they look at what's called the 5 by 5 forward rate. So what, what's inflation going to be five years from now for the next five years? And that five-year forward inflation rate moves along around with current oil prices. Mm-hmm. So when oil prices go up or down, it seems to affect the, uh, the, the people's inflation expectations through the tips market five years from now, which makes no, you know, no sense. Part of the problem is, is also the liquidity of the tips market is different than the liquidity of, of the nominal treasury market, and so that also can cause some noise in terms of your measurement. But you know, two separate sets of, uh, of, 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 of numbers, and then you also have the, you know, professional forecasters. You know, what do they think? So that's a third set. And so you look at these three pretty disparate sources of information on inflation expectations, you can get a pretty good sense of, you know, is it broadly stable or is it moving in, in, a, in, a, in a bad way? When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. 
EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. So, so let's talk about the biggest part of CPI, which is shelter. Uh, when we're looking at inflation, we really want to know what um, shelter costs are. The way BLS, the way the Bureau of Labor Statistics measures shelter is owner's equivalent rent. And, and full caveat, everybody's aware there's issues with this, and there are some changes coming. But, but let's talk a little bit, as it's been for the past couple of years, it's – Survey-based, hey, what could you rent your property for seems to be a funny question. So it's laggy versus real-time measures, and yet this is the single biggest part of, of CPI. Uh, George Box famously said all models are wrong, but some are useful. Is this a, a model that is both wrong and useful? Well, I, I think you've underscored some of the shortcomings of owner's equivalent rent as, you know, both in terms of timeliness and also in terms of, you know, it's not even a cash outlay that people are making. So <laughs> so when you're sort of thinking about what's happening to people's real incomes, you're sort of imputing a cost that they don't actually really incur. So when you're sort of thinking about how much can people actually afford to buy, well, I'm not really renting my house for myself. So <laughs> so it's a, so you're absolutely right. It's you a, you it, have a budget line for <laughs> shelter, but... It doesn't include. You've already sort of you're, it's, right. It's already it, in your budget. It's already in your budget, exactly. So I think this is one reason why the Fed puts more emphasis on the uh, personal consumption expenditure deflator because it has a much lower weight for shelter. But you're right. The the lags here are sort of crazy. So one reason why we're going to see lower core PCE deflator and lower core CPI over the next twelve months is because rents did come down. And then with a lag of about a year or so, it, is it that much? I always well, thought it, it was a couple of six months, a well, quarter or two. It's it's six months, at least six months. Because sorry, sort of like because the rents only pre, pre, repriced periodically, right? right? So, every year or two, every year or two, and so they have to reprice before they get into the. So it's so it's that lag. Because, you know, if rents repriced instantaneously, then the, everything would be sort of up to date. But rents reprice slowly when you know the lease comes due, and so it's lagging behind reality. So this is something that's going to probably feed into the core PC deflator and keep inflation a little bit lower over the next six to 12 months. But is it really 
you know, real in terms of what's actually happening to inflation on the ground, it's probably, you know, going to be a little bit misleading. So so there are a couple of real estate entities, the Apartment List Index or Zillow does yeah, a real-time index. Case-Shiller. Case right. So even Case-Shiller is a little bit of a, a lag, not yeah. as much as uh, owner's equivalent rent. But the interesting thing is the real-time uh, indices have showed falling real estate prices the past I don't know, three months, four months. It, it hasn't gotten into the CPI yet. Right. And it, so it's interesting it's, it's to coming. know. It's coming. It's coming. That's, that's got to be very optimistic to think, hey, even all these people are concerned about reacceleration of inflation. We know the biggest part of CPI is going to keep drifting lower. That's got to be positive for future Fed policy. Right. But the question is, is it temporary or is it more persistent? So to figure that to figure that out, we have to look at the housing market. So how right. is the housing market performing? Well, the housing market actually looks like it's starting to come back. Right. Why is it coming back? Because mortgage rates have fallen by, you know, one percentage point, and so that's actually stimulating the housing sector. So I think the interesting question is not like just what's the next chapter as this stuff feeds through the CPI. It's what's the chapter after that, mm-hmm. based on how quickly does the housing market recover in response to lower interest rates. So, so Powell was asked, um, I, I think it was on 60 Minutes, about the commercial real estate. So as opposed to coming up every year or two, you have uh, leases that go 5, 10, 20 years. So this seems to be taking place in slow motion, but it seems like commercial real estate is a, a genuine risk factor, certainly for, for some of the regional and community banks. How should we be contextualizing what's been taking place with remote work and work from home and the slow return to office process that still has lots of vacancies in in urban centers. Yeah, I mean, I would define it more narrowly than commercial real estate. I would define it as office building space because that's really where you have very high vacancies rates, very underutilized resource, and prices are coming down, uh, especially for, you know, Class B and Class C mm-hmm. buildings, not the the best stuff coming down quite significantly. You know, you, you're absolutely right. This is sort of a slow burn rather than a fast burn because the problem typically arises not, you know, immediately. It, it, it arises when the mortgage has to be or the commercial real estate loan has to be refinanced. As long as the income on the property covers the interest on the loan, the the the, the borrower isn't going to default. When the loan comes due, though, the lender typically says, "Hey, your building is worth you know forty percent <laughs> less than it was before. Uh, I'm sorry, we're not going to lend you as much money. You need to come up with more collateral." And at that point, the the the, the borrower might say, "I don't have the collateral. The building's yours." Uh, and so then the, that crystallizes in the loss for the for for the for the commercial bank. I think there are definitely commercial banks that are going to have trouble uh, due, to, due to their concentrated commercial office building portfolio. But I don't view this as big enough or fast enough to really be you know systemic from a financial stability perspective. Huh. Re- really interesting. All right, we've talked about the housing market, the office space market. One question we really haven't gotten to has been the stock and bond markets. They've been very chaotic the past couple of years. How does the Fed think about stock or bond market volatility? How does that impact decision making? Well, I think as Paul has said many times, you know, monetary policy in the U.S. works through financial conditions, and two key components of financial conditions are the bond and stock market. 
So if the bond market uh, yields are low, the stock prices are, are high and rising, that's making financial conditions more accommodative, and that's actually supporting the economy. So the Fed's going to take that into consideration. So you know, we talked earlier about why the Fed isn't moving yet, because they want to be confident they're going to actually achieve their 2% objective. They're not moving yet because the labor market is strong, but they're also not moving yet because financial conditions have eased a lot. And so the market is doing quite a bit of work for the Fed, even before the Fed actually has cut cut interest rates. So the Fed, you know, I I don't think, I think it's important to understand that the Fed doesn't really target financial market prices. So Mm -hmm. people sometimes say, well, if the stock market goes down, the Federal Reserve is going to react to that. No. The Fed's going to react to the stock market if, if the Fed thinks the stock market has gone down far enough persistently enough to affect the real economy to impede the ability of the Fed to achieve its its inflation and employment objectives. The Fed doesn't care about the stock market itself. It cares about how the stock market affects the real economy. So so sometimes you get a market crash and the economy shrugs it off. 1987, <clears throat> one day, 23%. The economy couldn't care less. And then even the dot-com implosion, which was modest on the Dow and the S&P, if you consider 30% modest, it was brutal on the NASDAQ, which was you know something like 81%. But we had a very mild recession in 2001. So does that basically argue for less intervention by the Fed? Or does the subsequent Fed intervention, is that what prevented this like 01 from becoming much worse? Well, I think 01 was really, you know, also... You know, 9-11, 9/11 on was it, really sure. a significant event, and that I think provoked a more, more, much more aggressive Fed. Um, I think the Fed, you know, is aware of what the mar- bond market is doing, aware of what the stock market is doing, because that affects the transmission of monetary policy to the real economy. But they don't have a view that we need to tar- target a particular level of the stock market or the bond market. That never comes up as an issue. Um, you know, it's not like the Fed. You know, if the stock market went down ten percent tomorrow, it's not like this. The Fed would go, "Oh, we need to change monetary policy." If it went down twenty-five or thirty percent and stayed persistently lower, that would probably have implications for the economic growth, and that would then affect monetary policy. But it's all through the effects on economic growth. Paul has talked about this. It's, it's it's the persistence of the change in financial conditions that matters. It's not what the stock market does over a day or a week. It's what the stock market does over six months or a year that really matters. So before I get to my favorite questions, I just have to ask really what you're focusing on today. Um, You joined the Princeton Griswold Center as a senior advisor. Um, You chair the Bretton Woods Committee. You serve on the Group of 30 and Council of Foreign Relations. Are are you still doing all those actively today? Uh, Tell us what's keeping you busy these days. Um, those things. Uh, the Brenton Woods Committee, I'm the chair, and uh, we've been uh, broadening out the work that we do at the Brenton Woods Committee. I mean, to just give, tell you what the Brenton Woods Committee is about, it's, it's basically dedicated to the notion that international cooperation and coordination lead to better outcomes. So along the lines of what Powell said in his 60 Minutes interview, and basically trying to build strong international institutions that can facilitate cooperation on you know important issues like you know financial stability, climate change, digital finance, health, trade. 
where countries working together can lead to better outcomes. Uh, so the Bretton Woods Committee, uh, you know, we it, it's been growing. Uh, the work has been expanding. We're doing work on digital finance, climate finance, uh, sovereign debt, um, future of the multilateral uh, uh, financial institutions like the World Bank and IMF. What should their role be going forward? So it's pretty exciting, um, and I spend you know quite a bit of time on it. What's uh, the group of thirty? Group of Thirty is a is a group of people. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's an organization that was set up uh, several decades ago, uh, of, of 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 people that are either currently very senior in academia policy, or were involved in academia and policy at a very senior level. You know, people like Paul Volcker uh, was a member of the of the Group of Thirty. Uh, Jean Claude Chachet is a is a current member of the of the Group of Thirty. Uh, a, a people of you know, Mark Carney uh, is 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 the is the the person who's in charge of running the Group of Thirty from a from a from a member perspective. So it's a lot of senior people that focus on uh, important issues of the day. So, for example, uh, a, a number of months ago, the Group of Thirty asked me to lead a project on, you know, financial uh, 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 supervision reform. You know, what should we do in terms of the regulatory policy re- with respect to the banking system in light of what happened in March uh, of 2023 with respect to Silicon Valley Bank and a number a number of other banks? And in January, we we published a report. Uh, we basically argued for a number of reforms that need to be made. And, you know, I've been talking to people at the Fed and elsewhere and tr- trying to get some traction for some of the proposals that we've made. Huh, really interesting. All right. I know I only have you for so much time. So let me jump to my favorite questions that we ask all, all of our guests, starting with what's keeping you entertained these days? What are you watching or listening to? Um, I usually, you know, stream things, you know, television series that uh, strike my fancy. Uh, you know, right now, you know, right now it's a little bit of a, you know, sometimes it's a little bit of science fiction like uh, Foundation. Uh, or uh, are you do you watching the second or third season of Foundation? Yeah, I'm, like, I'm in the second season of it. Right. Uh, sometimes it's things like uh, Poker Face, which is uh, uh, on Peacock. Uh, another one I'm lo- we're watching my wife and I now, um, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Just started on Amazon. Just started. So, you know, it's you know it, we usually watch one show a night. <laughs> that's that's, our, that's us also. That's so, sort of our tolerance. I never... Uh, I would, it's, a, it's a great way to just sort of unwind at the end of the day. I would not have pegged you as a sci-fi fan, and I'm going to give you the two recommendations I give everybody. Okay. Um, one is on Amazon Prime, The Expanse, which is yeah, I did I did read I did watch about five five of the Did you seasons. like it? It got a little wacky at the yeah, end. Yeah, I, I sort of ran out of gas after about the yeah. fifth, fifth season. But I, did, um, I did watch a lot of a lot of that. Fascinating political. Uh, and then the other one was it's only two seasons. Altered Carbon. It's really good. Okay, I haven't seen that uh, one. Fascinating story and. Uh, filled with all sorts of really inter- interesting. As a sci-fi geek, uh, those are my two favorites. Do you like uh, For All Mankind? Um, haven't seen it. So that one is about the sort of alternate space race between Russia and the U.S., where Russia actually gets man on the moon first, mm-hmm. and then it follows sort of the develop of the NASA program over over the subsequent uh, several. H- decades. How is the series? It's quite good. It's oh, quite really? Good. I'm gonna I'm gonna add that add that to my list. I am a sucker for a great space uh, venture. Um, let's talk about some of your mentors who helped shape your career. So uh, the most important one by far, I think, was uh, my professor at Berkeley, James Pierce. Uh, he uh, worked at Yale, then he went to work at the Federal Reserve Board in Washington. He was the associate director of research. 
And then he went to Berkeley, and I was his research assistant at Berkeley for four or five years, wow. which is a very long stretch as being someone's research assistant. And he sort of got me interested in policy and got me sort of knowledgeable about what the Federal Reserve was all about. And so I think the reason why I went to the Federal Reserve rather than went into academia is because of, of his uh, counseling. And he became a, 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 a really good friend. But there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of other people along the way, but he's the one that sort of, you know, stands out. Huh. Uh, let's talk about books. What are some of your favorites and what are you reading right now? Uh, right now, I haven't really gotten into anything particularly that's like grabbed me. Uh, I just finished uh, Andy Weir's uh, 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 book, uh, Hail Mary. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you that's a science fiction one. I have not read I don't read that. a lot of science fiction, but every once in a while I get a, a, a hankering for it. I, I, I typically read more things that are like uh, thriller, detective kind of things. Like, you know, I'm not a, I, I took a lot of literature when I was in college, Same. but I don't read a lot of heavy literature now because I usually, by the end of the day, I'm, 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 I'm a little wiped out, and 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 to read really good literature, it takes a, it takes focus, a, takes a lot of attention. So I like things like Dennis Lehane. Uh, uh-huh. I think he's he he does really good stuff. Uh, uh, Don Winslow, uh, I know the name yeah, for sure. Yeah, he does some really good stuff. Uh, so I like the stuff that's like a little bit, you know. Better than you know, sort of uh, Lee Childs, you know, a little bit deeper. Oh, than, sure. You know, Lee Childs entertaining. My wife is a giant Lee Childs. Lee Childs She's read en- everything. Lee, Lee Childs entertaining, but but every story is sort of along the same same lines. Um, so, so so that's the sort of stuff that I I like to read, and I, and I read a fair, I read a fair amount. Uh, the sci-fi book I have sitting on my nightstand that I'm almost afraid to start is the Three Body Problem. And it's each book is nine hundred pages, oh, and wow. there's three books. It's, it's actually by a, a Chinese um, author, and it references the inability to forecast uh, the location of um, uh, heavenly bodies of planets, yeah. moon, stars. You, we could calculate two. Once you bring a third one in, it's just to, it's gone. the outcome. I'll, is, I'll, I'll take a look at that. It, you, it's fascinating. Have you, have you read Ted Chiang? I know he's, the name. He's a short story writer. He writes short story uh, fiction. He's got two books, uh, science fiction. It's fabulous. What, what's uh, it's, I, very, it's very intellectual stuff. It's, it's he he writes he, he writes sometimes in the New Yorker magazine. So there's a book of his. Uh, I'm trying to remember. He, he's, I think he's had two volumes uh, of all short maybe. stories. Yeah, all short stories. Uh, uh, the, the, the movie The Arrival was based on yes. was based on uh, one of his short stories. So the one I just got is Stories of Your Life and Other Tales. That's yeah, fabulous. But the one before that is Revelation Ascendancy. Yeah. So, so it's, it's so funny you mentioned that. Literally just and I gave that to a few <laughs> friends for holidays. This stuff is great cuz really, it's, it's I'm really, excited. It's really that, mind-bending. That is like the book I bring on planes where all right, I got now to read. Let me let me go through a chapter. Really. And um there's this really fascinating collection of short stories. I'll, I'll never remember it, but I'll but I'll email it to you. Um, Diary of an Interstellar Refrigerator Repairman, something along those lines, <laughs> and it's it, it's brilliant science fiction, but it's also surprisingly uh, amusing and funny. It's it's I'll, you, if you like those, I think you'll you'll appreciate that. They're not. It's not all the same story they're kind of like just very loose set in the same universe but unrelated type of uh stuff but really really fascinating um and our final two questions what sort of advice would you give a college grad who is interested in a career in either economics or central banking or or monetary policy 
find an interesting job, build your human capital. Once you find that your human capital uh, is, is no longer going up at a particularly rapid rate, find a new job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I mean, I was very lucky because I jumped around in my career and I, and I feel like every place I moved, I, I learned a new set of s- skills and information, which sort of helped me do better at the next uh, in- endeavor. So I think it's really important not to get stale. Uh, and, you know, and the, the second really most important thing is find something that you that you can be you know that really interests you that you can be enthusiastic about because if you can't go to work and be enthusiastic about it you're not going to do very well and you're not going to be very happy <laughs> i mean ideally you know you like your work and the difference between work and pleasure sort of st- starts to blur and you don't really aren't resentful when there's more you know demands for your work i mean during the financial crisis you can imagine i worked pretty long hours but uh I wouldn't have had it any other way. I mean, it was absolutely a fascinating period of time. And yeah, it was work, but but uh, I, I got a lot out of it. My, my wife describes me as being gainfully unemployed, which is exactly along those things. I would do it if I was getting paid or not. So it, it works out really well. And, and our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today, markets, investing, monetary policy that you wish you knew 30 or 40 years ago when you were first getting started? Well, I mean, when I first started investing, I started investing in 1974, 75, and I have to say I was so naive about investing at that time. I didn't really understand, uh, you know, you know what what really drove stock market valuation, uh, you know, what determined the success of companies. Um, you know, you, you learn a lot by doing it. And I, and I personally think a lot of people over overinvest in, in the sense of making transactions. I found over time that, you know, I have good ideas once every like five, 10 years. And, and you know, you have to wait for that good idea to, to and then implement that investment thesis, you know, well. One thing, I'm good at it coming out with ideas, but I'm terrible at, at, at trading on them. Uh, you know, like Bob Rubin, a number of years ago at Goldman, you know, you know, you know suggested that, maybe, well, maybe you should, you know, should, should actually start trading things, try, try that. And I said, no, Bob, I don't think my, my risk tolerance is, is, is right for that. And the second reason not to do it is that if you start trading things, then it sort of leaks into your interpretation of, of, of information and sure. events. Because then you start to talk your book and try to contribute. You know, This is the reason why the 10-year bond yield should fall because well, – Because I have a position. Because I have a position. And, that's, <laughs> and, you don't, and I said to him, no, you don't really want me to do that because, one, I wouldn't be very good at it, and then I might lose some of my you know, objectivity with quotes around it. I do like the idea of low-frequency trading as a uh, Yeah, I mean, I think for most people, buying an ETF on a broad-based stock market and then putting it away for 20 years is the right approach. Can't can't really disagree. Um, Bill, thank you for being so generous with your time. This has just been absolutely delightful. Um, We have been speaking with Bill Dudley. He is the former U.S. economist for Goldman Sachs and head uh, of the New York Fed, as well as his many policy roles. Uh, at the Federal Reserve. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the 500 or so we've done over the past, hey, it's almost 10 years. Uh, You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Check out my new podcast, At The Money, Short 10-minute conversations with experts about the most important elements of your uh, earning money, spending money, and most importantly, investing money. 
I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team uh, of people who help us put these conversations together each week. Kaylee LaPara is my audio engineer. Atika Valbron is my project manager. Anna Luke is my producer. Sean Russo is my researcher. I'm Ben Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.